Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. The latest on the stimulus front, plus an exclusive conversation with Mike McCall, top Republican on House Foreign Affairs Committee. We talk about a wide ranging host of geopolitical issues. And Alyssa Farah joins me live. Lots of reports about uh, what authorities are saying might happen tomorrow in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk with the former White House Director of Strategic Communications to President Trump. Remember, she heavily criticized Trump after January 6th. So we've got a lot to get through. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied none other by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno and Tyler Deaton. Tyler is a Republican strategist, fundraiser, and president of Allegiance Strategies. We begin tonight with a big story. Tough words from President Biden for Republican governors loosening their state's COVID-19 restrictions in texas and mississippi statewide mask mandates are being lifted as are most if not all limits on businesses and the white house today uh, at the white house today the president said he wishes some elected leaders understood the science of masks and social distancing here's the sound on that the last thing we need is the neanderthal thinking that in the meantime everything's fine take off your mask forget it it still matters wash your hands Hot water, do it frequently. Wear a mask and stay socially distanced. And uh, I know you all know that. I wish the heck some of our elected officials knew it. Well, one of those elected officials, Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas, responded to President Biden's comments. Here's the sound on this from Senator Cornyn. This is not just a one-dimensional problem. We need to look at the whole thing. And I think uh, Governor Abbott in the state of Texas, I'm proud of the work we've done. Jeannie Shanzano, I mean, on the one on the one hand, President Biden the other day saying that everyone's going to have a vaccine. Adult Americans are in just a couple of months. And now we are back into this politicization of the mask. That's true. And, you know, one thing that's curious to me as we see, you know, the Senate getting set to, uh, we assume in the next week or so, vote on this big bill as it pertains to these states like Texas and Mississippi and governors like Governor Abbott and Governor Reeves. When that money comes, which we're assuming it will for COVID relief and things like schools getting retrofitted, do they accept that money or reject that money? I think that's a 
big question that they're going to have to answer because, of course, they have um, made the political case in those states that they are moving in a different direction and may not need that money, which is, uh, you know, going to be curious to see how their citizens react because, of course, that bill is very, very popular. Well, Tyler didn't come in here because uh, on the one hand, people, the polls suggest that people are going frustrated and losing patience uh, on on how the dynamics have shaped up uh, with the, the lingering restrictions on COVID. But on the other hand, the Biden administration is saying that because it's because of their work that, that we're all going to get vaccines in a couple of months, what, which is right. Um, well, I, I don't know that either of them are right. I think that this is um, masks on, schools open. That's, to me, where both parties need to find the common ground and both parties need to give a little bit here because we need our masks on, right? Like the the Texas 100 percent reopening, ending the mask mandate, like that is that is clearly not a solution. And it's clearly premature to be going there. But I think that what we're hearing from across the country, across the political spectrum, is that schools need to be open. And so let's get our priorities in straight. You know, I am someone who has been a very, you know, Trump skeptical Republican. I want Biden to succeed. I think I speak for a lot of other Republicans who feel like the vaccinations are still not going quick enough and we're still not opening up schools quick enough. But if the trade off in all of this is that we need to keep our masks on, then that's worth it. Like keeping our masks on means that we can open our schools. It means that people can get back to work. And so until we get the all clear, which I guess you know, the smarter minds will say that that's whenever they say that we've reached, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent vaccination, herd immunity, then we can start to take the masks off. But until then, masks on. And yes, schools open. The schools have got to be reopened. All right. Well, I actually put this question to uh, one of the top lawmakers in Texas, and that's Congressman Mike McCall. And I asked him point blank about uh, Governor Abbott's uh, decision yesterday and whether or not he agrees with it and what's going on with the masks. And uh, M- Congressman McCall, by the way, is the top Republican uh, on the uh, Foreign House Foreign Affairs Committee. And we, we had a broader conversation, as you'll hear. Uh, but here's his answer on what he what he thinks about Texas ending the mask mandate. Here's the sound on that. Well, I think uh, we've had we've had COVID now for a year. A lot of people have been vaccinated. Um, I think what the governor is simply doing is taking the civil penalty off of this. Businesses can still uh, have a mandate uh, if they choose to do so. And any county that has more than 15% population uh, with COVID in the hospitals can also um, have a mass requirement up to 50%. It's just give a little more flexibility back to the local level, which I think, you know, we haven't experienced a pandemic in our lifetimes at least. And, um, it's kind of a, a case-by-case basis here. I, I hope it, it, it prevails. Um, Texans do like their independence. And, uh, and, um, and I, think, uh, you know, I think it's time to start relaxing some of this. You know, they also like their, their power. And uh, as you know, just staying in Texas, there's been a, a recent push to weatherize uh, Texas's power grid. And as we're looming, uh, we're, we're setting up for a looming battle on infrastructure, just do you think that there's an appetite amongst your colleagues on both sides of the aisle to provide some money to update Texas's power grid? I think we have to. We have to winterize uh, our power grid. And as you know, ERCOT runs independently uh, on its own. Uh, and that was done intentionally to not have federal burdens uh, on it. And uh, um, and with that, we get a lot of cybersecurity. 
um, we're not connected to other grids. Uh, having said that, in this case, it, it was to our downfall. Um, yeah, the, the northeast grids are vulnerable, but they are winterized, and uh, they do have uh, winter storms like we experienced. We're just not used to it, and I think it's it's time for uh, Texas to make the investment necessary to uh, winterize our power grid operations. You know, here we are in the middle of all of these different spending uh, battles on, on Capitol Hill, whether it's infrastructure, obviously the Senate's taking up uh, the $1.9 trillion stimulus uh, uh, spending bill this week. But uh, one of the things that I think there's bipartisan agreement on is to make sure that the United States doesn't lose its competitive advantage against China, uh, especially as China just a couple of days ago has passed their own uh, uh, the technology proposals through the Communist Party of China. Just in your work on the committee, sir, what are you seeing as some of the key policy areas that need to be dealt with in the immediate short term, especially as it relates to keep the U.S. competitive edge against China? Well, you're right. China is investing a trillion dollars in their digital economy. We have to compete with that. And, and you know, they have the Belt and Road Initiative with Huawei, which is basically a telecom surveillance network. And we gotta be more competitive with them in the 5G space, automated intelligence, uh, quantum computing. Uh, I think the big issue of the day, uh, COVID was a wake up call on supply chain. You know, that how can our medical supplies be held hostage by the Chinese Communist Party who actually started the whole virus in the first place? I recently met with the president, President Biden in the White House, in the Oval Office talking about supply chain issues. I think he fully appreciates and understands the issue. See, this is where the national security and, and manufacturing domestically really collide. So what specifically would you like to see done in order to incentivize some of that semiconductor chip manufacturing to bring jobs to the United States? Well, I already got authorized on the National Defense uh, Authorization Bill, uh, the Chips for America Act. So this, is, uh, this whole program has been authorized, which would include uh, a Department of Commerce grant program, uh, billions for research and development. But I think most importantly is this, this investment refundable uh, tax credit. We've got to give these manufacturers more tax incentives to relocate and build in the U.S. I just got off the phone with the Samsung um, in my district. I mean, they're looking at um, building out their manufacturing capabilities, but they need to be incentivized. And it's, it's a, one of the largest foreign investments in the United States. And at the same time, so critical to our national security. These uh, advanced chips are in everything from your iPhone to F-35, you know, fighter plane. And so uh, hugely important. Well, I mean, and it's part of this broader conversation that I think the, the United States, based upon conversations with people like yourself and, and candidly on both sides of the aisle, is starting to have geopolitically in terms of this broader conversation of techno-democracies versus techno-autocracies. How important is it to make sure that 5G is operating from the same as the previous administration uh, coined the term, a clean network, so to speak, with our U.S. allies? Well, I thought the, the previous administration, I worked very closely with them on the clean network, getting uh, Huawei out. And we were losing the battle against Huawei for a while in, in their Belt and Road Initiative in developing nations. And uh, under Secretary uh, Kroc, good friend of mine, went uh, to Europe, I uh, got a lot of MOUs signed, including uh, got the, the Brits to agree not to take Huawei. And then he went through a lot of these developing nations, basically to educate them that look, um, well, maybe cheaper, it's the cheaper quality, 5G by the way, but it's not gonna be in your long-term best interest because they're gonna have all your data. 
And they, they will be able to basically conduct, as I've said before, a telecom surveillance program in your country. That's not what we do. We have a clean 5G system that, that, that's not a, a data tracker surveillance program. And so uh, they had a lot of success and, and we need to keep that momentum going so that um, we win against the Chinese in 5G. It's not just uh, 5G data, it's also health data. Are, are you concerned, Congressman, that the, the Communist Party of China is collecting uh, Americans' health DNA data? I, I know they are. And I've been briefed on this in both the unclassified and classified space. There's genome, genetic, genetic data that they, have, uh, that they have from Americans in the United States that they would like to exploit. Uh, there are some other crazy things we're doing that, quite frankly, Kevin, I can't get into because it is so highly classified. But uh, needless to say, in terms of military, uh, getting genetic material to enhance their military prowess. And uh, um, I think it's something that we really need to, to stop taking a blind eye to. This BGI, they call it, has clear, clear links to the Chinese Communist Party. And they, um, there are no restrictions on the ex exports of, of the, this data, uh, health data, uh, to China. And I think we need to start looking at uh, getting, uh, protecting this U.S. health information. I mean, most Americans, if they, they heard this story today, Kevin, would just be in shock that they have Americans' genetic data. It, it, to even go beyond that, it's not just in the United States, but to, to your point, Congressman, uh, China and Russia uh, have been making deals around the world uh, for vaccination distribution. Are they are they beating the United States in terms of exerting soft power uh, on, on various countries as it relates to vaccination distribution and the deals that are going on on, on vaccines? Well, remember what they did with the personal protective equipment. They, they knew in advance that this was going to happen well before the rest of the world, and they hit it. They did not, they did not broadcast that this was going into a pandemic, and they actually uh, covered it up. Um, they hoarded the PP, they bought it all, all over the place, and then basically extorted other nations in this a sort of goodwill ambassadorship of giving out PPE. Uh, it does concern me that uh, it's very deceptive on their part. Um, but I would have to say the Putin vaccine, President Xi vaccine, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, there are no safety standards uh, like we have in this country. And I think our, our vaccines are safe. And I'm, I'm very worried about this mass distribution by Putin in his country and President uh, Xi with the China vaccine and, and some of these longer term health implications. Let's stay with Russia as we, uh, uh, there's been some new developments on the Nord Stream 2. Uh, and, and in fact, there was a bipartisan letter uh, that was sent, of course, to the to uh, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken that you signed, uh, Congressman, uh, as it relates to sanctions designations from last week. Uh, what are you doing? What are what is the committee doing and, and, and the bipartisan work that is being done uh, in order to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? We passed a bipartisan mandatory sanctions on the, the construction and uh, finishing of the Nord Stream 2 project. It's done very intentionally to, to circumvent Ukraine so they can they can take Ukraine back. They've always considered Ukraine the breadbasket of Russia and they want it back. And this is a way to get around Ukraine where they don't, uh, Ukraine can't uh, have any of the, uh, uh, the uh, some of the, the, the prices that, that come with that. Um, and it's, I think it's the best way to hit Putin where it counts, and, and, and that's in his, his wallet. And uh, uh, this source of energy go, going around Ukraine to, to Europe, I'm, I'm just quite frankly surprised 
by one of our allies, Germany. I talked to the ambassador. Why would you want to be dependent on Russian energy? Why in the world? And, and, and Germany is a country that is really pushing this project. Uh, we think the administration needs to implement these mandatory sanctions, which I think will very much cripple Putin and the Kremlin, and at the same time, open up Europe to other energy sources like the United States. Are you confident that Secretary Blinken is going to be receptive to that? Or I guess even Secretary Yellen? I think, I, you know, I hope so. I mean, you know, if, if Congress passes mandatory sanctions, they're bipartisan. And we, we passed it, uh, uh, you know, the National Defense Authorization Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would hope that we get their attention. And if, if they don't pay attention to it, Kevin, we do make the laws. And we're going we're gonna to make sure it's enforced. You know, I just uh, two more questions for you. Uh, the first is uh, about a bill you reintroduced calling for the release of former U.S. Marine Trevor Reed uh, this week. Why is that important? Well, this is such a sad case. And yeah, I met with his mother. He's a Texan. He's a Marine. He was over, uh, he was over uh, in uh, kind of studying in Moscow and was taken hostage, uh, quite frankly, and thrown in a kangaroo court process. He's basically a political pawn. Uh, who has been in prison now for quite some time for no crime. They are trying to negotiate him as a political pawn for other things that they want. And I, I would, uh, again, call for the administration to really um, take this into account and you know, as they talk to the Russians, really call for his release. And just finally, we've talked a lot about technology, and, and I just want to give you the opportunity in, 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 in wake of solar winds and cyber hacking and cyber espionage, what should the appropriate response be to countries like Russia and China when, when they do engage in these types of cyber hacks? Final question. Great question, too, Kevin. This is the, the problem is this is where it's not well, well defined, right? I, I stood up the cybersecurity agency within the Department of Homeland Security to defend the nation and share threat information with the private sector. We have our Department of Defense uh, that can conduct uh, both in, uh, cyber warfare situations to defend the nation, but a cyber command that can offensively attack other nations. But we don't have any international standards or norms. I introduced and passed out of the committee uh, the Cyber Diplomacy Act which will create a cyber office within the State Department, an ambassador at large that then has authority to negotiate a memorandum of understanding, MOUs, and possible treaties with other nations, but also what, what, what is appropriate internationally. Right now, uh, China and Russia can do with impunity. They can steal our information, they can pull off the solar winds, hack, and there are no consequences to that action. As long as we don't have consequences, this bad behavior and the international stage is going to continue. So that's why I think that's very important that we have these international standards. And I think NATO would be a very good place to start uh, as, as we look forward. And I think it would fill the missing piece of the puzzle. That was my exclusive conversation earlier today with Congressman Mike McCall, a Republican from Texas. He's the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Uh, listening to that interview, Tyler Deaton, a Republican strategist, as well as Jeannie Sean Zeno, a Bloomberg politics contributor. Jeannie, your takeaways, my big takeaway was that last remark in which he said essentially NATO should be the geopolitical organization that the United States and the NATO allies work through to get to some type of cyber truce, so to speak. Uh, 
And that's really fascinating to hear him raise NATO uh, as the the body to do that. Um, and, and I'm thinking back to the conversation we had last week with the Senate Intel Committee Chairman Mark Warner about solar winds, and he also raised the prospects of an international organization trying to to, to weigh some cyber truce. It, it's interesting because, you know, I think that's something that's going to be music to a certain extent to the Biden administration's yeah. ears. They they want nothing more than to work with with our allies across across the world and NATO certain being lead amongst them. I also was struck by I mean, it was a wide ranging conversation, but Xi Jinping's attempt to cut dependence on the West, mm. which you asked him about and how the United States will respond to that, to me, is such a fascinating conversation. It is like everybody is turning inward increasingly and I wonder how the U.S. does that and he gave us some clues on that as well in terms of this bill you raised about taxes incentives and others well and to that point Tyler Deaton I think what uh, Congressman McCall did especially on the the semiconductor chip and the manufacturing component was he actually talked about it from a domestic job standpoint so much of the That's semi right. of the semiconductor chip shortage has been about the the supply chains from national security and he obviously talked about that too Tyler but he actually took it to jobs in his district and manufacturing and that's a that's a you know candidly usually I'm used to hearing Republicans and Democrats in Ohio tell me about that but not through the prism of semiconductor chips Tyler no and look this is another opportunity for some bipartisan cooperation Kevin and it's not getting enough ten- attention that last week President Biden issued this hundred day executive order to study the US supply chain from top to bottom because the pandemic, exposed a lot of weaknesses the semiconductors are one of them but by the way food has been one of them like there's a whole range of issues that the administration has started this study process on and i think it's all great news for the listeners like the republicans and democrats are seeing that there's an opportunity here that helps job creators helps get some people back to work and makes america more resilient this semiconductor issue has exposed some real weaknesses that I think before the pandemic people just didn't know that we had. And also, this isn't even all related to the pandemic. It's sort of like the pandemic has just helped us see where some of our weaknesses were. Yeah. Well, to your point, uh, you know, and here we are in the year, this month, the year anniversary uh, of the pandemic. and, and, And I still take it back to what many Americans for the first time a year ago when they went to the when they went to the um, grocery store and had and saw the pandemic shopping, Jeannie, did you did you run into any empty empty shelves at the grocery store? We had no paper towels or toilet paper in New York. I just want to say that went on for months. They, it's back now, but it was shocking for a while. Well, but for the first time, and we we laugh about it now, yeah. but that's a privilege that we as Americans have enjoyed. Take for granted. We yeah. really took it for granted. Yeah. And, and Biden at the White House yesterday, President Biden at the White House yesterday, I don't have the sound on it, but I got the, the transcript of it in which he said Americans should not have to live with any shortages in the United States of America. And and all of these conversations, as nuanced as they are and as nerdy and wonky as they are about semiconductor chips, about the supply chains and the parts of pills and, and, and pharmaceutical companies and the uh, broader standpoint of, of the of the dependence upon China, all of it relates to whether or not there is toilet paper and paper towels in Jeannie Shanzano's 
shopping shelves <laughs> in New York City. <laughs> Which need to be full. And, and Kevin, can I just say, you had such yeah. a wide-ranging conversation because you started asking him about the power grid in Texas yep. and infrastructure. And to Tyler's point, let's not forget, when the grids went down because of the weather in Texas, it was chip manufacturers in Austin who were shut down as well. So Bingo. in order to get those people manufacturing, you need a grid you can rely on. That's going to require a real investment in Texas and across the country. That was great analysis. Thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate that. Coming up next, conversation continues, and Alyssa Farah joins us, and it's been a busy day. Did you see Jen Jacobs' scoop? Trump's weighing running again, but without Pence. We're going to ask her about it. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Coming up, a conversation with former Trump insider Alyssa Farah. She then went on to criticize Trump for January 6th. Don't miss this tomorrow with my colleague David Weston, brand new Secretary of Agriculture. Tom Vilsack is going to be giving his first television conversation in his new role it's going to be a wide-ranging conversation tomorrow uh on balance of power with david weston and and honestly uh, uh, it's going to be really insightful to see what he has to say about uh all of the the trade policies and and with china in particular uh and whether or not uh, what he plans to do to to hold china accountable for what they have done in the previous administration and promising to make significant agricultural Purchases. I'm accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano, Republican strategist Tyler Deaton. And Jeannie, I mean, we talk so much about China on this program. I'm really looking forward to that interview tomorrow with David Weston and Secretary Vilsack to see exactly what what they're going to outline, what the Biden administration is going to outline on agriculture. And, and I know, David, we'll get to this, but my biggest question on that is how is the policy going to be different, if at all, from what the Trump administration had done vis-a-vis China? Mm. And that's something that, you know, you and I talked about, David has talked a lot about yeah. during the campaign, but in my mind was still never clear. So it's going to be fascinating to hear what he has to say. And at some point, Tyler... I mean, I know bipartisanship is a, is a bad word, and I'm being kind of ironic and funny, but maybe they should just all start saying that they agree. Well, I'll tell you, I got one specific thing. You're the pollster, do Tyler. Does a poll well? Does agreeing with, with, with another party poll well anymore? Go ahead. No, it actually doesn't. It polls a little better for Democrats, actually. But here's the thing. We have, with agriculture, we have a labor issue. Okay, we rely on the amazing work done by immigrant workers in this country. And there is a bipartisan bill that passed the House last year with over 30 Republicans that would create a real guest worker program 
um, for our agricultural business community. And we need that. And so, look, like, if that's not part of the conversation, then I don't know how we start to make progress. Well, Tyler, I mean, you and I both know this, that, you know, the immigration proposal that Chairman Menendez has put forward and other Democrats in the Senate is is filled with uh, what Republicans would dub as policy poison pills and that the area of consensus is never what gets passed as a standalone. So, I, I mean... You know, do you are you telling me that based on your conversations that the immigration proposal that the Biden administration wants could actually get through? No, I, I don't think that. Right. But I think that uh, there we go. Can. But now I sound like and a that's pessimist. What this is. Well, but look, that is the issue is like, let's take this sector by sector. Right. And, and I think that the business community, of course, they get this like different sectors have different needs. And if we're talking about our agricultural challenges in America, I just have to point out, we're really also talking about an immigration challenge that is clear and present. There are bipartisan solutions that we've already agreed to. And so, no, I'm not talking about the Menendez bill or what's been called the Biden bill or the U.S. Citizenship Act. I think that that's a whole nother can of worms. But the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, that's the bipartisan solution. I would love to see them wrap their arms around that because that can get 60 votes in the United States Senate. Let's continue to talk about wages uh, through the prism of the economic stimulus bill uh, that continues to inch forward in the Senate. And we're still anticipating a vote over the next uh, couple of days, as early as Friday. And we're hearing word that we're probably going to hear from President Biden on the economy on Friday. Friday, also, Jeannie Shanzano, Jobs Day. So it's going to be a huge uh, news day on the eco front on Friday. And, And that's will that be seen as a positive development um, if this thing actually gets passed on Friday. And a very big development today, I think, for Democrats on this point about about the unemployment benefits, because last night, of course, there was concern that we may see a, a real split between the moderates who wanted to cut from 400 to 300 dollars and extend the unemployment benefits longer. And today we're hearing that they did reach an agreement to keep them at 400 per week and then to narrow the phase out for the 1400 stimulus. I think that's a huge breakthrough for the Democrats on this front. And that really allows the Democrats to move this bill forward, maybe as early as tonight, if not tomorrow. And then to your point, a big day on Friday. And it'll be interesting to see what President Biden has to say on this. I think he's got to be very happy so far that it looks like his, you know, signature bill is probably going to pass. And Republicans have very little sort of concerted argument in my mind against it. You know, I was having a, a lunch with a, a Republican source at Capitol Grill earlier today, and they feel that the longer states, the longer we go on and more people get vaccinated and the more states start to reopen, that ultimately this government spending will not be as popular. This is what they're saying. This is what they're banking on, will not be as popular. And I've got actually sound on this point from Senator Joni Ernst. Uh, Because she spoke earlier today up on Capitol Hill, and she said that the bill punishes states who reopen their economies. Take a listen to the sound on this. We're rewarding those states that have ratcheted down on their economies. They haven't opened up. They've killed small business jobs in their states. And those hard workers in our states that are managing our finances well are being punished. Tyler Deaton, I mean, as you talk to your Republican sources, it, 
how divided are Republicans on whether or not to support this bill? I I have to say they're not divided at all. I don't think there's a single Republican vote for, for any of this. And that's the design of reconciliation. I mean, I think as soon as President Biden decided to go this route, that was that was just the end of a possible bipartisan bill. And I would not defend that decision really on either side. And I wouldn't totally criticize President Biden. I think, you know, he could have tried to string this along and try to get 10 Republicans. And it probably still would not have come together, Kevin. I think that Republicans are pretty unified that they don't want to give President Biden this win. But he's going to get it. He's got his votes. They're going to do it on reconciliation. And everybody's got to buckle up because we're going to do this at least two more times this year. We're going to have another big budget that goes on reconciliation. And everyone is starting to say that the infrastructure bill later yeah. this summer, before the summer recess, that's uh-huh. going to go on reconciliation, too. Tyler, the coffee shop around the corner from the Bureau just reopened today. So maybe I can get you and our EP, Christine Barada, to enter back oh, into the district. All right. He said he loves it, Barada. So maybe we all got to go there. People got to start coming back to the district. I'm getting lonely. I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sean Zeno, first-time caller on the, uh, but a long-time listener um, on the uh, on the telephone. Alyssa Farah. She's been everywhere lately. She's on all the cable shows. Uh, she just has been everywhere. She is the political strategist and the former White House communications director. Uh, and actually, I, Alyssa, I feel like I've interviewed you on background so many times I've lost count. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> and yes, I am a longtime listener, Kevin. It's great <laughs> to be with you all. <laughs> well, let's. we've got a lot to get through. Um, and I want to start... Uh, uh, first and foremost, with the situation up in New York with Governor Andrew Cuomo, he said that he would not resign amid mounting scandals as he sought to contain growing damage to his political future with a public apology and a plea to voters to withhold judgment on sexual harassment claims against him. My colleagues report uh, on the uh, Bloomberg terminal. I mean, you know, I, you've been following this story, I know, but uh, should he resign? Oh, he absolutely should resign. And, you know, Congresswoman Kathleen Rice came out calling for his resignation, Long Island uh, House member representing that area. There's been bipartisan calls. um, And I give a ton of credit to State Assemblyman Ron Kim, who was kind of one of the first people to speak out on the nursing home uh, scandal facing the governor. But the thing that people need to follow is we've got dual scandals. And we can't lose sight of either of them and in holding the governor accountable. So we've, of course, got these horrible allegations of sexual assault or I'm sorry, sexual harassment. These are three extremely credible women. You've got in one case, you know, contemporaneous photo evidence that, again, to any woman to look at that, it really just pulls at your heartstrings because it is all too familiar in our society. But then simultaneously, the governor's coming under scrutiny for the fact that thousands of New York seniors died in nursing homes because they were co-located against CDC guidelines with COVID patients. Um, So these are both very serious, real issues. I I will give, if I'm going to give Andrew Cuomo the smallest amount of credit, I will give him credit for speaking to camera and taking reporter questions. But his answers came up so short. I mean, saying that you greet people by kissing them on the face. Well, it's, it's 2021, and as a woman, that is highly inappropriate. You should have changed that behavior a long time ago. 
And listen, his, you know, the, I would say this. I'm bullish on he's never going to resign. He's one of the most politically connected individuals in the state of New York. But the walls are closing in around him, and he's under dual investigation. So we'll see where yeah. this goes. Alyssa Ferris uh, was uh, with us, and we just got a headline that crossed the terminal. Uh, the Senate is... Uh, uh, the Senate is not expected to vote to begin stimulus debate tonight. Again, the Senate is not expected to vote to begin the stimulus debate tonight. So we're carefully monitoring the events up on the Hill as well. Alyssa, you're one of the few folks who is not afraid to criticize either party, including the party in which you are a part of, including the administration in which you served. Uh, you were very public in your criticism of former President Trump uh, for uh, what happened on January 6th. And, you know, here we are where the House has canceled uh, votes tomorrow because of the rumored uh, conspiracy theorists. And, and, and you know, what are you going to be or what, what do you hope the former administration does in order to, you know, assure that there's no violence tomorrow? Well, uh, you know, former Chairman McCall, I should say, Ranking Member McCall weighed in on this and yep. um, very wisely said we need to be on high alert. Um, take any threats seriously. Um, there's reason to believe that they're credible. I think it's wise to cancel votes. I would tell folks, you know, don't be in the greater capital region if you don't have to. I'm on the outside now, unfortunately, don't have the intel of the inside. But I would say this, you know, this is the easiest thing to condemn um, is any sort of acts of violence, um, domestic terrorism. It would be helpful if folks within the Trump orbit just preemptively came out and said, hey, we're hearing rumors of this. Stand down. This is not what we stand for. I think that would go a long way. I don't know if that's what you're going to see. But, again, I, I trust that law enforcement's taking these extremely seriously. Um, you know, we had hearings on the Hill kind of analyzing what went wrong on January 6th. So I, I trust that the right heads are planning for this, and I don't anticipate it being comparable to January 6th. But Again, it, it never hurts to come out and just condemn these things before they get bad. Alyssa, it's Jeannie Shanzano, and so good to talk to you. And just sticking with what you and Kevin were just discussing in the House, but moving in a different direction, um, I wanted to get your reaction to the National Republican Congressional Committee Chair Tom Emmer saying today that former President Trump should back down on his attempts to primary GOP leaders who voted to impeach him. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and in particular, the likelihood that he will take that unsolicited, I'm sure, advice. <laughs> uh, well, Chairman, Chairman Emmers is right. So going into the midterms, um, the, the momentum's on the side of Republicans, just because historically the party that's not in power tends to pick up seats. Uh, the map looks in our favor. But what I would say is this, we would win, Republicans will win back the House by winning in lean Democrat or moderate Republican districts. It's not deep red super Trump districts that we need to win. So what we need is all the energy, the fundraising, the surrogates, focusing on winning back the voters that we lost in 2016, suburban women, seniors, college-educated white men who left the Republican Party with a message of, this is what we're looking toward in the future. Here's a message of economic prosperity, of opportunity. If, the, if President Trump decides to be playing in primaries, not only does it detract attention and resources um, from races that we need to win to get the majority back, we also we also have an uphill battle to win back seats. So the last thing we need to do is be taking on some of our safe members like a Liz Cheney or a Tom Rice. So I, I hope that folks around him are giving him the advice. 
Um, the majority well, maker districts are those moderate districts that we need to win. I got to be honest. I had lunch with one of those people who he, who he talks to very frequently today, and uh, I don't think they're telling him that. I'm going to just be honest, Alyssa. But <laughs> <laughs> I do well, want to note, Alyssa, <laughs> Alyssa has worked at the Pentagon. She's worked for the Freedom Caucus. She's worked for the vice, former Vice President Mike Pence uh, and, of course, uh, for, for former President Trump as well. She's one of the few uh, folks in Washington who understands the policies just as much as the politics. That's why we're very grateful uh, for her time. I, I got to ask you about this Jen Jacobs, Mario Parker, and Mark Niquette scoop. Uh, Trump waged 2024 White House run without Mike Pence, his allies say. I mean, I, I want to get your reaction to that, but also, I mean, doesn't that kind of free up Mike Pence to begin exploring his own presidential ambitions? Well, yes and yes. And I did see that some of the Trump camp came out and, and, and denied that story. But if there's one thing I know, if Jen Jacobs reports it, it's probably true. So um, <laughs> uh, I would say this. 2024 is a lifetime away in politics. Um, you, you know this, Kevin. I mean, think of where we were four years ago. Uh. There is going There are going to be front runners, including at this time, I would say Trump is the front runner. There will be others. There will be candidates we're not even thinking of. And we actually, as Republicans, have a pretty deep bench. So think of a Mike Pence, a Pompeo, a Nikki Haley, a Christy Noem, a Ron DeSantis, a Tim Scott. I could go on. The best thing for Mike Pence, I think, is if he's able to break out on his own, look at partnering with somebody strong who kind of shares those core conservative values, but also doesn't necessarily put off voters in the way that at times the Trump rhetoric did. So I would say this. I think it's probably best for both of them. I think if Trump is going to make a comeback in 2024, and I, I again caution, you know, he's extremely popular with the base. Um, he certainly is the front runner right now. I don't think it would hurt him to have a female candidate or somebody who can reach a lot of the support that we lost in 2020. So, I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, you're not counting him out from 2024. I'm not. I think that he is a master of the media and he is going to float his name, keep it out there without fully committing to it for as long as he can. Um, he is very good at building up momentum and momentum and excitement around something. So I think we'll be asking ourselves for at least the next two years if he's going to run. Yeah. Um, and he will certainly continue to allude to it. But I'd say this. Look at 2022. See who the biggest players are in midterms. Is it Mike Pence who plays well and call it, you know, a Chicago suburban district to flip a house seat? Is it a Mike Pompeo? Is it a Nikki Haley? I think whoever emerges as the kingmaker in 2022 is on the best best path for a 2024 nomination. Alyssa, come back on and talk geopolitics with us because I, you know, you're you're. I want to catch up with you on geopolitics as well. That's Alyssa Farah. Thank you so much, Alyssa, uh, for Thanks coming so on. so much. Good to be with you. March is Women's History Month, and here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in women's history in 1913, the first major parade for women's suffrage took over Washington, D.C. Thousands of women gathered to call for a constitutional amendment guaranteeing women the right to vote. Women had been fighting hard for suffrage for more than 60 years by that time, but this marked the first major national event for the movement. The huge parade was spearheaded by Alice Paul and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Parade organizers maximized attention on the event by strategically hosting it just one day before the inauguration of President-elect Woodrow Wilson. This tactic worked. That's Today in Women's History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And there you have it, Jeannie Sean Zeno. I mean, I, I, I was really struck to hear what... Uh, 
what Alyssa had to say about Trump's potential future ambitions. She she had a lot to say, and I think it's it's critical that we are hearing that he may run without Pence. And um, she also, since it's Women's History Month, mentioned people like Nikki Haley. So I know she says 2024 is a long way away, but it can't come soon enough for me. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so do I. Get me back on the trail. Coming up much more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.